0: Welcome to episode number four of Behind the Glass, a podcast series brought to you by Iger Studios. I'm your host, Dom Richmond, and in this series, we talk to music producers and engineers whose work in the studios helped create some of the greatest records ever made. In this episode, I spoke to Olga Fitzroy. Olga is a music producer and mix engineer who began her career working at Air Studios in London. She has worked with George Michael, Paul McCartney on the Beatles' Love Album, Coldplay, Foo Fighters, Muse and Hans Zimmer, as well as many Oscar-winning composers and some of the world's biggest bands. She has also recently been involved with and worked on TV scores such as The Crown, The Innocents and Doctor Who. Olga also mixed many of the performances featured in the 2012 Olympic Games Closing Ceremony and its accompanying album for artists including Ed Sheeran, Jesse J, Teo Cruz, Tiny Temper and Ray Davies. In addition to her work as an engineer, Olga is a campaigner on women's issues, working hard to tackle obstacles faced by self-employed parents with her campaign for parental pay equality leading to a new bill being debated in Parliament. She has a high-level influence on matters of equality in the music industry through her board membership of the UK Music and the Music Producers Guild and was also named 11th on the 2018 Women's Power Hour list of women having an impact on music. I caught up with Olga to talk all things music production, what it's like working in the prestigious air studios and the process of creating great records. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Olga Fitzroy. Hey Algy, all right?
1: Yeah, not bad. Thanks.
0: Good, good. How are you, uh, how, you be, how you been keeping during this um, this crazy time? I, I guess we're we're living through.
1: Yeah, not too bad, really. I mean, studios are working, so it's not been so bad this time round.
0: Yeah, have you have you found um, how how busy have you have you been over the last few months? Because I know during the first lo- lockdown at the start of the year. A lot of people I spoke to, kind of, you know, it was down tools and kind of really having to have them think about what we're going to do. But um, but everything seems to have picked up quite drastically over the last few months. I don't know if if, if you found the same.
1: Yeah, it's been sort of yeah the first lockdown that like, everyone just shot because no one knew what the hell to do and everyone just stayed at home. Um, but this time round, everyone's been busy. Like there's been loads. Like I personally, I've been really busy. Like sort of started slowly back in June and then. September through December, it's just been nonstop, and I know a lot of the studios have been the same.
0: Yeah, we we found. I mean, are you finding certain certain areas of work are are, are, are busier than others? Uh, in in the in you know, I know you do, do like quite a diverse range of project projects. Um, are there things um, that that have, have become? I mean, we're getting a lot of songwriters in at the minute and people who um who obviously have written a lot during during the first lockdown. Yeah. Um, so that's nice.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's hard to tell. A lot of the stuff, I guess, that I've been busy with has been stuff that has perhaps been approved before lockdown, before the first one, and then everything got paused. And now there's a bit of a kind of backup. So a lot of TV projects that perhaps had and film projects that were like perhaps almost finished by the time lockdown happened and are now at scoring stage that perhaps would have been scoring in the summer.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. So it's kind of it, it kind of it's kind of it was about like a big pause, really. I guess, hasn't it been?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like three months or so.
0: So let's dive back a little bit then. I mean, how, how did you how did you get you start in music? I mean, did you? I mean, a lot of people they kind of they either start in bands or they're formally educated. What was your What was your story when you when you started?
1: Um. Same. Really. I started in bands. So when I was about fifteen, sixteen, I used to play the drums in kind of punk bands, and so my plan A was to be a drummer in a band. And um, then I went to college to do music and audio technology, so sound engineering. And that was kind of, it started off as my backup plan, but very quickly became my plan A. Uh, I just really enjoyed it. um, And I ended up doing quite a lot of work experience at local studios close to home. Um, And then by the time I'd finished my two year college course, I realized I was absolutely nowhere near getting a job in the studio. I mean, I used to knock on doors in studios in Glasgow and people would just kind of laugh at me basically. Um, so then I went back to uni and did the Tonmeister course. Um, and the reason I did that was because as part of that course, you get a year actually working in the studio. And that was really important to me, because I kind of could see that without having any real practical experience or knowing anybody that worked in a big studio, I wasn't going to get a job. So that was kind of the reason I chose that course. And I ended up going down to Guildford to study at, um, at the Tonmeister course. And then my placement year ended up being at Air Studios and that's kind of how I got my in in the industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, how, how important do you think it is to do it for students to, to look into doing placement and um, and kind of a year in industry? Because it's not something that I ever did. And I I felt like I spent probably like eight to ten years in a different field before I kind of came back round to the recording and the studio side. Um, because I had no experience and there wasn't a job that somebody was going to give me. And I just like was quite naive at university thinking that that was going to happen, you know.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's really important because, as you say, without either having an in or having loads of experience, it's incredibly hard to get that first job in the studio. So I found that year at Air. I mean, I don't I don't know if I would have been able to get a job in the studio because I just I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how you go about it. And those jobs don't tend to be advertised. I know these days, perhaps it's a little bit better. And some studios do say, oh, we're looking for an intern. But it'll be the same, you know, there'll be lots and lots of applicants and they'll choose someone presumably who perhaps is being recommended by one of their clients or who's done a bit of work there already or who they know personally. So I think, yeah, I think it's invaluable to get some sort of um, work before you go out into the jobs market, whether it's like, you know, I don't think it should necessarily be an unpaid internship. The one that I did was paid most of the placements from the Tonmeister course, you do get kind of paid like a minimum wage sort of thing for that year. Um, but I think it's really important to get some practical experience. And most importantly, it's probably the networking part of it. So you get to know the people that are working, not just the studio manager at that studio, but you'll get to know visiting engineers and producers. And by the end of six months or a year, you'll have a really good address book of people that you can then potentially start asking if they've got any work for you when you graduate.
0: So how how did it come about that you would that you would like stumble upon an internship at Air though? Um, how did you how did you go about get? Because that's a pretty prestigious place to be. Um, so how did that come yeah. about?
1: Um, so the course, the Tom Meister course, had a kind of existing relationship. They have relationships with a lot of the bigger studios um, and broadcasters as well. So. A previous student had done an internship, done a placement at AIR, and they then got in touch with the course and said, oh, have you got someone for this year? And then I think a small group of us, I guess, approached our tutor and said, oh, we're really interested. And he kind of picked the three or four most suitable applicants to apply for this internship at AIR. So we went and did an interview and I then got the call that I'd got the job. And was that the
0: first proper recording studio you'd really worked in? Did you have much experience in recording before that other than university or uh, college courses?
1: i have done a bit of work experience with a local studio back home, a little place called Seagate Studios, but that's just, you know, a, a really small little band room. So I'd had a bit of experience, which I think was probably quite helpful, but obviously a completely different world from working at Air. Where was that based then, that
0: studio? That was up in Dundee. Uh, is that is that where you grew up in?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Fife, um, which is just like twenty minutes south of Dundee. So, did you have um, did you have many mentors
0: then, down at Air, or, or beforehand, or?
1: Um, I mean, not. It's weird. Like, people go, "Who's your mentor?" I mean, at Air, you're kind of you're thrown in at the deep end. You're like you're a second assistant basically on big sessions. And then once you get more experience, you might be a first assistant on a smaller session. So the people that I would mainly learn from would be other assistants and the kind of in-house engineers at AIR. I mean, they're all freelance, but they're the ones that kind of grew up at AIR, went from being assistants to in-house engineers to being freelance. So, Probably the people at AIR that I worked with the most and learnt the most from would be Nick Woolidge and Jeff Foster uh, on the film scoring side. And then sort of as I was going from assisting to engineering, I worked with Rick Simpson a lot, who's Coldplay's producer. So again, he's someone that I've learnt an awful lot from.
0: Yeah, we had Ken Nelson on the uh, podcast recently. Oh, did you? Oh, I love Ken. I love yeah, Ken. He's brilliant. Ken, Ken's great. He's got a lovely space up in um up in up in Liverpool now. Um, so I had a, I had a really great conversation with him, uh, him recently. So that was a. Uh, it was nice. It's nice to have a similar, you know, like a similar interest in, there in some of those artists. One of the notable things that he worked on was obviously the um the love album, the Beatles' yeah. the love album. I mean, that it must have been a real honour. to to kind of assist on that and work. I mean, how how does a project like that come about and how do you prepare for something like that?
1: Um, I mean, that was Giles Martin, who is Sir George Martin's son, was obviously one, him and George worked together on that project. Um, And obviously a lot of it was done at Abbey Road because they don't let the tapes go out of the building for obvious reasons. But this was just a chance to do a new recording for some old Beatles tracks. I think it was actually the last ever Beatles recording that I got to work on. Um, And it's weird because you work on these amazing sessions and even that one kind of setting up for it, it's no different to another session in a lot of ways. But then once it's actually happening, then you know, that one in particular did feel really special. Um, So George actually conducted the strings. I think that was probably his last ever conducting session as well. Um, And there's so much love for him in the room. I mean, all the musicians just absolutely respect and love him and are grateful for him, you know, because he built Air Studios. Before that, Abbey Road was one of the few orchestral studios in London. So he's kind of not just, they don't just admire his work, but they actually admire the fact that he's given a lot of people an opportunity to continue being recording artists and session musicians. So there's an awful lot of love in the room for George that day that we recorded that.
0: Yeah, it must have been a bit of a magical experience, that, because, um, yeah. cause it, cause, you know, there's a lot of Beatles things that get remastered and stuff, but this was this was very different. I mean, I remember first hearing it and being kind of blown away by the production quality of it and yeah. and, and thinking the arrangements and some of it, some of it was incredible. So, yeah, I can yeah. imagine that was, um, was that kind of, that must have been very early on in your um, time at Air then. Was yeah, it like 2005, 2006 so, or something that, well that came out?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I can't remember whether it was towards the end of my placement um, or whether it was when i just started back full-time. I'm not quite sure, but um, Nick Woolidge was the engineer on that one. Um, and yeah, I assisted him. I think it, it might have been one of, it wouldn't have been my first gig as a first assistant, but it was definitely, as you say, it was quite early on in my assisting career. So do, in terms of working,
0: because I know you do a lot of film uh, scoring and, and stuff as well, is, is there much, what's the difference really in preparing and setting up for different projects like that? Because quite a lot of what you do um, is is diverse um, and the artists that you work with and, you know, a lot of producers I speak to, they kind of niche down and they go into like their area of expertise and they concentrate on I'm the guy that does metal recording and tracking yeah. or I'm the mix engineer for dance tracks or so how how do you how do you manage lots of different diverse projects like that
1: I think I guess it's a lot of it is the same principles um and you know even if I do like a lot of diverse genres I probably I guess do a lot of acoustic recording so whether it is a band doing a kind of live session at the studio or whether it's an orchestra or a small kind of group of ethnic instruments for a tv show it's I guess it's similar principles um, of just getting getting a good sound, getting a good acoustic sound, setting people up in good positions where they can see and hear each other. And again, working places like Air, you know, those rooms, I know them really well. I know what mics work in which positions and what, what mics work in which rooms. And I just think it's that really, it's experience. And I guess drawing on that experience. So, you know, even if I'm recording an instrument that I've not, encountered before i can sort of come at it from first principles and go okay i'll probably google it if it's something really obscure have a look at it and have a listen to some recordings and then approach it i guess in a way that is similar to a similar instrument and and the same with i guess ensemble sessions again whether it's a big band or an orchestra it's still musicians that all kind of broadly have the same needs of being able to see and hear each other feeling comfortable in the space um and you know knowing how to deal with things if something's not working knowing whether to record people separately or to change something in the setup to make it easier for them so I think even if it's different genres you're kind of using the same skills and experience to kind of make the session run well I think.
0: With working with artists do you you have a, a like I don't like to think about a formula of the way to do things in music but some people do have formulas and and um, when we were chatting to Stephen Street, he was saying that he doesn't like to do pre-production with the band. He likes the band to come in, you know, someone like Blur or, or Morrissey, and, and he will just go with what's happening on the day and he will work like that. Um, yeah. how, how do you find, do you, do you get involved? I mean, I know lots of producers, they'll go, in, they'll go to shows, they'll go to the rehearsals, they'll, they'll start, you know, arranging and picking things apart before the session. How, how, do, you, how do you work like that? Do you, do you get involved on a sort of pre-production basis?
1: I think it kind of depends. I mean, partly it depends on, I guess, schedules and availability and budget and all the rest of it. But if I'm working with a young band that perhaps haven't recorded before, then I do like to go into rehearsals with them or and see some shows. um, Maybe hear some phone demos of stuff that they've recorded, because there's probably things that I know that I I could iron out before we get to the studio and save them time and money on the day, whether it's sorting out tempos and arrangements and that kind of thing. But then, when it's bands that have made loads of records and are a lot more experienced, or if it's session players, then I don't tend to do that. But then, in those situations, then I'm probably a lot more confident in the arrangements of what's going to be played that day that it will be something that works. So it really depends on the artist.
0: Yeah, and I guess every every session is different, and every person is different. I mean, we we have a thing between like live or tracking or click, and you know. I know people that have a specific way of how they do it every single time, but I guess it's getting inside the head of the artist, isn't it? And and understanding what they want it to sound like and and using the facility in, in that way. Um, what do you think the barriers to entry are for, for women looking to pursue a career in music production nowadays? I mean, how did you find that coming up and going, going through that?
1: I mean, I have to say I haven't personally encountered anything Particularly negative. I mean, when I was doing my college course and my university course, I was always like one of about two or three women in each course, and about and there were about twenty boys or men in all my classes that I did. So I was definitely in the minority. Um, but for me, I didn't. It didn't put me off. Um, I kind of got used to it and wasn't a problem. And then I was really lucky at air again that it felt very supportive. There's a big family atmosphere and the studio manager was very encouraging. So I have to say I didn't really encounter anything negative on kind of entry into the industry. I know other people have had different experiences, so I'm not saying there aren't problems, but I was quite lucky that I didn't really have any issues. I think the fact that there are so few women doing these courses means that there's definitely something going on before people even get to the stage of getting a job. So whether it's as they're growing up as kids and the subjects that they choose at school, I think culturally there's something that is putting women off doing things to do with technology and sort of pushing them more into caring professions. Again, not that there's anything wrong with any of those, but it does seem to be quite disproportionate the way that, just globally, not just in music, the way that um, the kind of careers are segregated between men and women so I think that's a kind of wider societal issue rather than just a music industry issue. Do
0: you think it goes really kind of a bit deeper back then to kind of early schooling?
1: Yeah absolutely I mean you kind of if you start looking for it then you can see it everywhere and there's a lot of campaign groups and there's been TV programs made about it just about the way that we treat children essentially that we treat boys different from girls and then that Kind of affects the whole rest of their lives. I think the Fawcett Society have just brought out a quite interesting report on this. I've just read the sort of first page of it. Um, But it's basically saying, yeah, the way that we treat boys and girls differently is kind of bad for both.
0: You're the founder of Parental Pay Equality and you campaign for the charity Pregnant and Screwed. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you you work with those charities or that charity and what what you do with those?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I was saying I didn't feel there were any barriers for me personally entering the industry. Um, for me personally, the kind of barriers I came up against came later on in my career. It was After I had a child, um, I suddenly felt I was back in the 1950s. And again, I think it's not just a music industry thing. I think it's definitely a societal thing. So I noticed that a lot of the, the way that just benefits and work is structured, that the default is that the woman looks after the baby and takes a good chunk of time out of work, not just sort of like recovering and what have you, but actually it's expected that you take a, at least a year off. If you're freelance, then men don't even get a single day of paternity leave or share parental leave, and women get their, get their nine months. And then after that, childcare doesn't get subsidised by the state until the child is two or three, depending on your income. So then you've got another year where... Again, it normally falls to the woman to look after the baby and put her career on ice. And then if you have families where they have perhaps two kids, before you know it, the woman's had six years off work. And I think, as any freelancers know, just taking a couple of months off, you know, makes you a bit worried about clients and work. So it really opened my eyes to the difficulties that particularly freelance women face when they have families So I started a campaign called Parental Pay Equality, which was to change the law to give men and women who are freelance shared parental leave. The reason I kind of chose that because they'd quite recently brought in shared parental leave for employees. So I thought, well, you know, the government obviously is into this. They they are quite keen on this policy and having it shared for freelancers wouldn't cost them any more money. So that was kind of my thinking behind it and i started campaigning on it and uk music and the music producers guild were really supportive and actually introduced me to some MPs who they thought might support it so i got talking to tracy braben who is the mp for batley and spen in yorkshire who used to be an actress and she completely got it because she did the same she raised two kids when she was freelance and she put in a thing called a private member's bill, which is a law going through Parliament that is brought by a backbench MP. And she brought in this law, this uh, this bill called the, um, we called it the selfie leave bill. So that was sheer parental leave for self-employed people. And these kinds of laws don't normally pass because they're brought by a backbench MP, but it's a way of raising awareness and it's still pretty amazing to have a bit of paper with an actual law written on it, even if it then gets voted down by some old dinosaurs in Parliament. So that's what we that's how, that that's as far as that campaign got. So we got a law in front of Parliament and it was then voted down on the second reading. So that's kind of what parental pay equality have been doing is basically campaigning on equal rights for self employed parents.
0: Okay, so if there's anybody is anybody listening that wants to get a little bit more involved with, with that or um or any of the, the charities you work with that can they can they donate, can they find more information?
1: Parental pay equality, you can find that um parentalpayequality.org.uk. dot Um during the pandemic we've been a little bit dormant just because I've sort of felt that the opportunities for getting that that change in the law are not going to be right now because everything's to do with the pandemic and they're not going to be bringing in those types of laws right now. But I think there will be an opportunity hopefully next year because they are going to be doing a lot of stuff on employment rights. So that's going to be the opportunity to bring in that change of the law. So we will be ramping up our activity on that one. Um, And the other charity that I got involved with through my work with Parental Pay Equality, I just got kind of found more campaigning type people on the Internet. The other group I've been working with are called Pregnant Then Screwed, and they campaign against maternity discrimination across the board. So for employees, self-employed people. And again, during the pandemic, they've been incredibly busy because it just seemed like most of the decisions made by the government have been made by men for men. And we've had a huge amount of women being made redundant or pregnant women not being safe in the workplace. And then the icing on the cake, the one that I spotted immediately was the uh, self-employed income support grant, the Safe scheme, which a lot of engineers and producers will have benefited from. Uh, they take an average over your past three years, which seems you know, fair enough. Again, I understand that a lot of these things are being made kind of as quickly as possible just to try and reach some people, they're not going to be perfect. But it then transpired that if they're taking those three years, anyone who's been on maternity leave in those three years is gets their income massively reduced. So I had my income reduced for that. Um, so I was going to get less than a man doing exactly the same job on exactly the same income as me, just simply because I had to take maternity leave because men don't even have the option of taking any leave if they're self-employed. So we've actually decided, um, with Pregnant Then Screwed, with this charity, to take the Chancellor to court. And we have a court case on the 21st of January, which will determine whether their decision to not to discriminate against women in this way, whether that is actually legal. So we're really hoping to win that one and cause it'll make a massive difference to a lot of women that have been affected by this.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you did some, did some really, really good work. I know you work a lot with the Music Producers Guild as well.
1: Yeah how
0: important do you think the, uh, the music producers guild is to to engineers and and aspiring producers
1: i think their role has changed quite a lot i think um it's definitely in normal times it's useful for networking. There's a lot of events and things and obviously the awards, which is a kind of chance to shine a light on some of the less well-known roles in the industry. I guess a lot of people might have heard of producers that are outside the music industry, but they might, might not really know what engineers and mastering engineers do. So our awards is, I guess, the kind of show, showcase for talent in the industry. But then during this pandemic, we've been really involved in campaigning for government support as well. So when Rishi Sunak announced this self-employed income support scheme, he said the first people that he mentioned were musicians and sound engineers. So that's down to, there's obviously a lot of people are campaigning, asking for support, but particularly the Music Producers Guild and the Musicians Union were a part of that group of people asking for government support for the self-employed. So I think that side of it is really, really important to have somebody that represents us as engineers and producers, that fights our corner. Um, another part that we've been involved in has been writing the guidance to allow recording studios to get back to work safely. So I think you mentioned like a lot of places shut down during the first lockdown because everyone was basically, right, we have to stay at home, um, not sure how essential studios are, and definitely don't know how to work safely. So I think pretty much everywhere shut down, apart from one or two places where it was just a mixer or a mastering engineer working on their own. Um, So we were involved with the government. They put together a working group, including us, um, Musicians' Union, and asked us to write some guidance based on the government guidance to allow us to get back to work safely. And then Public Health England and the Health and Safety Executive would review and approve our guidance. And that was really important because it meant that we could flag some of the things that they were suggesting that were just wrong or that would put clients off. Um, We actually managed to push them into doing research on singing and brass instruments because everyone was really kind of paranoid about those sorts of instruments. Um, And we actually got them to do the research, which then meant we could have guidance that you don't need like loads of extra distance or any extra measures, that it's actually not any more dangerous than loud talking. Um, And without our input, that wouldn't have happened. And you'd have had even more singers and even more brass players out of work than we currently do. So I think that was really important to just get them to do the research rather than just assuming everything's really dangerous.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we had, we had, we've taken a lot of our guidance and from, the, from the view of the, the Producers Guild as well. And we, we had the same, the same situation with um, the Brass players. I mean, it, it, it's almost like there's been a U-turn on, on an awful lot of the decisions that they've made. Um, but yeah, so that sounds like some great work you, you're doing there. Now, I'm not very technical in terms of a producer, um, but there are some people who who really are, um, who who would probably want us to talk a little bit about gear and equipment and things like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, so do you, I mean, you obviously use a lot of kind of, you, you work on a big, co- big consoles, use a lot of outboard. Is there anything in specific or in, in particular that you like to use or you favor? Maybe there's a favored vocal chain or mic that you... That you kind of have a as a go-to mic. What what sort of stuff do you use down at Air really?
1: I think I'm, I've been really spoiled. Um, the fact that, like you say, I do get to use big desks. Um, I mean, my favourite desk is the vintage Neve in Studio One. Um, it's a custom vintage Neve from 1979 that was designed with Sir George Martin had input into the EQ bands that are on that desk, and it's got the remote. Air at mic pre's and to me it's still the best sounding desk in the world I'll do a monitor mix on that desk and even if the balance isn't quite right the actual quality of the sound is still better than you know anything you'd get anywhere else so that's my favorite desk. Um, in terms of mic pre's I guess I, I'll go Neve if I can and even if I'm working at somewhere smaller or a project studio I'm sort of not that interested in trying a bunch of different mic pre's i'd rather just go with a neve that i know will work and sound really good and and i also know where i am then when i'm kind of going does this sound right how does this sound i think so i would if i've got the choice i'd always go with a neve if i can
0: how about sort of like plugins i mean do you always favor outboard or do you uh do you use a bit bit of a hybrid a lot of people use both now or do you do you mix in the box i mean how, how do you sort of do that
1: I mix in the box these days um, unless it's something where kind of the client's in the room and you're just able to do a mix on the board like sometimes on jazz sessions I'll still do an analog mix on the board but normally for anything else film or tv or band I'll do it in the box just because the kind of the control that you have and getting recalls back is just so much more practical so in the box I've got I use a bunch of UAD stuff um Again, the Neve emulations. I like the Waves SSL plugins. I'm trying to think what what I use that's new or interesting. I mean, I, I, they're kind of my go-to things. Um, I like the Altiverbs. I quite. I like the Abbey Road plates on Waves that came out not too long ago. Um, Altiverb. Yeah. What else do I use? I tend to. I tend to sort of put um, the kind of console emulations on each channel. Bef- when I start mixing, so put a Neve emulation on every channel, or an SSL, or the Waves SSL plugin, and kind of take it from there. If there was
0: any producers listening who were starting out and say they they just got a copy of Pro Tools or Logic or something yeah. and, they were, um, and you had to recommend some kind of starter package of maybe plugins <laughs> or mics or or a preamp, what would, what would you say? Have you got any uh? What what's the kind of minimum requirement you think to make some some great records?
1: See, I don't think you need an awful lot of gear, and I. I often advise composers or musicians that are getting something to record themselves. So for that, you know, obviously it depends on your budget, but if you can afford a Neumann mic, then I think something like the TLM-103 cardioid condenser mic will cover you for pretty much anything. Um, So you can do vocals and instruments on that. If you can afford it, get a Neve mic pre and they'll hold their value as well. So I'd say, you know, if you can afford a German mic and a British mic pre, then that's quite a good combination. And in terms of plugins, I think you don't need a crazy amount of stuff. I mean, try things. The good thing is so many people do demos. So I would say try stuff. Um, It's not about the number of plugins. I mean, you can get a really good balance with just the in in the box stuff. Um, Probably if I had to just buy, if I was only allowed one plugin, I'd get a nice reverb. I'd maybe get maybe get Altiverb, Reverb and maybe get the Waves SSL and that would kind of cover me for quite a lot of things.
0: So what would you say if if that same person was starting out, what what would be the key skills that they would need? Like maybe we've talked about the technical side, but what about socially? How, how important are social skills in music production?
1: I think they're the most important, I think, getting on with people. I mean, when you, when you start as a runner in uh, whether it's a big studio or a little studio, Nobody's expecting you to be a brilliant producer, but they are expecting you to be a nice person, to be good company, um, know kind of when to be quiet, which is probably most of the time on a session, uh, but just be kind of watching people and be ready to help them. Um, So, yeah, I think that part of it's key, just getting on with people, being easygoing, being friendly, making people feel comfortable. And also doing that thing that if, you know, if you go to a nice restaurant and the waiter is like keeping an eye on the room and the minute you're even thinking, oh, maybe I need some water or something, they're there. That's what your job is as an assistant or a runner. So just like being able to read people and kind of predict what they want.
0: That's a really good way of looking at it, actually. That's a good, uh, a good, <laughs> a good idea. With the way, yeah, someone said to me recently, um, 80% of it is social skills and, and man management. We, we, we talk a lot about uh, football analogies down at Igra down at Iger, our studio um, and managing, um, managing artists like, like you would a football team, knowing, knowing when to work with a specific person, knowing how their strengths and skills and how they work as a team. Most people I speak to, it's kind of eye open how important the kind of social skills are. And I think it, that kind of rings into like when, you, when you're trying to get into break into industry or, or get some experience, your social skills are really important in networking as well. Absolutely. If someone was starting out now and they had little experience and they wanted to meet some clients or artists and wanted to start making some records or you know find some client or clients or get client base, what advice would you give there?
1: Um, I would say, obviously, in non-COVID times, this is a lot easier. <laughs> in non-COVID times, I would say go to gigs, get chatting to the artists there, go to events. I mean, again, in normal times, the MPG does quite a few events. Some of them are open to member or just for members, but a lot of them are open to non-members. So it might be a panel by some producers or it could be uh, reviewing gear, kind of like a smaller session in the studio. Um, so, and the other industry bodies do events as well. So I think get signed up to the mailing lists of the industry bodies and you'll see what kind of events there are. Um, and again, if you get chatting to someone maybe offer to come and see if you can hang out in the studio and help them out on a session. You know, even if it's not, even if it's just for a day, uh, you can make yourself useful. Hopefully you'll get to learn a bit. You'll get to know some people in the studio. And again, if you're working with a producer and you're lucky enough to get to go along to a session, make sure you say hi to everybody in the studio. So don't just like hang out with your producer, but make sure you go in and see the studio manager, thank them for letting you come in. Just be like super keen and nice and try and Kind of make as many contacts as possible.
0: So one of the things that I get asked a lot is, um, is about younger people and people that are maybe at university level um, and are are then doing free work. What, do you have any thoughts on that? How, how important is it to, to kind of price yourself and, and, and your value? Or do you think it's important to do lots and lots of work for kind of unpaid work when you're younger to build your portfolio?
1: I think it's, this is a really good question. I'm generally really against doing free work because I don't think it helps anybody. I think if you're at uni and you want to record your mate's band, then absolutely do it because you're learning and they're getting something out of it. Um, But I think if you're actually doing a job, so if you're working with a producer and they're wanting you in for a whole week to get off and plug in mics and do stuff, they need to be paying you for it. I think, again, if you're asking someone as a favour, whether you can come in and observe their session, that's a bit different um because you're not kind of doing a job you're just there to learn and listen and I think that is still valuable but I think anything that you sort of go hang on a minute you should be paying someone for this I, I do think be very careful about doing that I think the more people do it, it kind of it undervalues everybody's work and you know ultimately, ultimately it means that only wealthy people can actually afford to get a break in the industry and that's not really what we want to do and I think also from a producer I think there's no point in using free labor because you're not you're not going to get good work out of people if you're not paying them so I think absolutely take any opportunities that you can to kind of shadow people if you can and learn from people but if it's actual work then don't don't do free work again i think it's different if it's your mate's band and you're actually just enjoying doing a track for them that's fine but i think anything where it's actually there's a kind of client um and employee relationship then it needs to be paid
0: i don't know if you find but i think it's much harder um, nowadays because there's a lot i have a lots of students coming i have a placement student at the minute and he asked me a lot about how, where he should price himself in the market and yeah. how much he should charge, you know, should he, should he spend, um, should he charge 20 pounds to, to mix a track? I mean, but then, you know, when you go on places like Fiverr or any kind of, um, websites where people set up a home studio, I feel that people are getting a bit of a misrepresentation of, of what the pricing structure is, because, you know, you could, you could get a track mixed for five pounds from some people on, on fiverr and it and i think people people see that and think oh well i need to i need to compete with that
1: i'm not even aware of this
0: <laughs> do you know do you know fiverr
1: no what is it it sounds horrific
0: it's kind of i mean i found it recently it's because someone was saying oh you should upload you know you should upload your um, like a portfolio it's basically um a kind of it's almost like a freelancer site where you, you you basically put a pitch up for for yourself and you you will maybe make a little like intro video and um and offers, you know, like I did mastering, this price, whatever. And then people can... It's a bit like an eBay for, for freelancers. And it's not, it's not just music production. It's like if you need a vocal...
1: Oh, it's everything a fiver?
0: No, no, it's not. <laughs> I think I've think I probably explained it a little bit badly there. But there, there, some of it's really expensive. I mean, there's some yeah. people on there who charge an awful lot. But in that same breath, there's people in there who are just starting out, who maybe live at home and can charge next to nothing and think they're going to, you know play a bit of a numbers game. And, and I, I find that a lot of students now will look at that and go, oh, how can I compete with prices so low? Well, maybe I should only charge 20 pounds, but I don't know, do you think it's really important that you at a very early age, you kind of set out a bit of a boundary of your value or what, you, what you're worth? I mean, it's very difficult to navigate without much experience or much of a portfolio, I'm sure
1: yeah I think definitely, and I think you know we all do it we i don't I don't know anybody actually I know one or two people, but most people are a little bit flexible on the rates depending on what the project is the the budget of the band, their relationship with the band or the producer you know all those things play a part, and most people are a little bit flexible in what they charge depending on what the job entails but I think probably what would be the most useful and maybe the MPG can do a workshop on this, is actually teaching people how to negotiate. So I'm lucky enough to have a manager, so they do it on my behalf. But I think that would be really handy to get. So no matter what kind of price bracket they're working in and what level they're working in, actually having those skills to negotiate something that you're comfortable with, that is fair, and how to just make that agreement before you even start the work, I think that would be really valuable.
0: Some people find it very difficult to talk about rates and money face-to-face. Um, and it's you know that's I guess that's the same in, in every every single industry. So it's a, yeah, it's interesting that, that you'd say that. So what what advice would you would you give to any kind of young women who are looking to go into recording and production? It, you know, is there a route that they can take, or do you think there's any, anything they can do to increase their chances of of, uh, of breaking through?
1: Um, it feels like now is quite a good time. I think um, you know just be persistent. I don't. I think it's the same as it always has been. It's competitive and hard to get into but that doesn't mean it's impossible to get into so keep trying and I think a lot of studios now are also quite aware that they don't want to be a completely male dominated environment a lot of places are actively looking to recruit female assistants and engineers because they don't want to have just a bunch of blokes in the building so I think it feels like almost now is quite a good time for women if they're you know it's the same as Anybody going into a studio job, you need to kind of go in with your eyes open, know that it's going to be long hours and probably not very well paid. Um, and But if you're prepared to do that and you're passionate, then I think there's no reason why you can't be successful in it.
0: Are you working on anything at the minute? Anything interesting at the minute?
1: What have I done? I've just finished uh, working on the score for a film called The Foundling and also a film called The Mauritanian which is um, The Mauritanian is about a prisoner who was kept in Guantanamo Bay for ages. Um, and I think that one's sort of coming, at, coming out for Oscar season, so people are quite excited about that one.
0: In terms of the film scoring and stuff, it's when you're working on it, is there a, what's the turnaround before we start to see that on there? Uh...
1: This one, I think, is quite quick. Um, again, with the fact that most cinemas aren't really running at the moment, um, I'm not quite sure when stuff will come out in the UK, but I think... There's that one in particular, I think, they're hoping to get that out quite quickly. Um, yeah, it's it's really varied, though. I've kind of lost track because I've got no idea <laughs> when which cinemas are going to be open when. Um, but like The Crown, for example, I did that and I think probably did the last session for that in maybe August or September. And then that came out in November on Netflix. So that's the kind of turnaround for that one.
0: I mean, that blew up, didn't it? It um, must yeah. be pretty, pretty amazing to see things like that. Um, you know, like been talked about all over the place, and knowing that you've you've had an active role in in, in working on that. And um, do you do do you do most of your um, scoring and film production stuff at air, or do you do a lot of it at home? Or
1: it's a mixture, really. I mean, the recording for that, I think we did we did all of it at air this time, and I mixed it actually at the composer. He's got his own studio up in East London, so I mixed it at his studio in Logic.
0: Do you do much stuff at home then, or just bits?
1: I do quite a lot. So um, what have we been doing? I've done actually quite an interesting project uh, for uh, a project in Spain. It's a Spanish project for an exhibition um, of one of Gaudi's houses and it's like soundscapes and things like that. And it's a bespoke composition that we recorded in Berlin and then I took back here and mixed at my home studio Um, and then I've sent back over to Spain to get put into the exhibition.
0: Oh, wow, that's amazing thanks a lot for giving your time today i really appreciate it i've really enjoyed the uh i really enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah hopefully soon we can uh, we can start going to gigs and doing th- like one of the one of the enjoy one of the enjoyable things about all this yeah hopefully we'll speak again very soon
1: brilliant thanks dom
0: take care
1: cheers see you soon